Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vagar Muradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Last week, we attended the Halifax International Security Forum in Nova Scotia, Canada, where we had an opportunity to connect with diplomatic, economic, security, and civil society leaders from around the world. There, we met with Admiral Carl Schultz, the 26th Commandant of the United States Coast Guard. The force of some 55,000 active duty, reserve, and civilian personnel is deployed worldwide as it builds capabilities needed for a future characterized by great power competition as well as climate change. Before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage, Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall, and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Here's our conversation with Admiral Schultz. And it is my honor to welcome on the program Admiral Carl Schultz, the Commandant of the United States Coast Guard. Sir, you're looking great, and uh, this meeting has been long in coming. We haven't seen each other in a couple of years. It's been a while, Vago, and it's good to be back in Halifax. I'm looking forward to some really uh, thoughtful discussions in the coming days here at the Security Forum. I know we missed last year, so uh, good to be here with you. Uh, in, in, indeed. Um, we are at a time when the new administration is working a national security strategy, a national defense strategy, an Indo-Pacific uh, strategy. Uh, all of these have factored large in your uh, strategic planning, and at a time when we need to both stand up to China, but also figure out ways to constructively engage uh, a country which is encroaching in, for example, Micronesia and what would be considered America's sea space, the 14th uh, Coast Guard District. Uh, that is, you know, your front row on that. And the Coast Guard has a whole series of other attributes that go with a white hull ship as opposed to a gray hull ship. In this period of great power competition, what is the critical role that the Coast Guard can play as we're trying to both engage but also defend? Yeah, Vago, I would tell you, you know, we've been a Pacific Coast Guard for more than 150 years. And as I look at the demand signals coming out of the combatant commanders for more Coast Guard, particularly Indo-Pacific, 7th Fleet, you know, we've sailed uh, multiple national security cutters over to the region now. Matter of fact, the national security cutter Monroe just returned in recent weeks from a 102-day deployment there. So in the course of her 7th Fleet deployment, she uh, exercised an MOA or MOU that was signed with Taiwan late March this past year, so Taiwanese uh, Naval Forces. Uh, we, we sailed an exercise with the Japanese Maritime Defense Force. We were down with the Aussies, sailed three days in company with their carrier and some other com Aussie combatants. We trained with the uh, Indonesian Bakamla, which is their version of the Coast Guard. Action, you know, activities with the Philippine Coast Guard and the Philippine as an aquatic, like a natural resources service. So we partnered with a bunch of different folks there. Um, did a Taiwan reciprocal, 180 degree reciprocal course transit of Taiwan Straits with a, a U.S. Naval combatant. So uh, I think we bring you know, some unique capabilities. I think the Whitehall, maybe some additional access, I think from a collaborative partnership standpoint. My predecessor talked about an era of Coast Guards, and I continue to use that phrase because as I look to the Indo-Pacific region, there's a lot of folks that are more like us than like the United States Navy. They have naval forces, some have Coast Guards, some just have Coast Guards, but they want to partner with us because they see us bring in that range of law enforcement, you know, concerns with IUF, uh, search and rescue, that, that looks a lot like the United States Coast Guard. So I think we're a preferred partner in the region. Um, there is a tendency of thinking about China's military might, for example, hypersonic weapons or a fractional orbital bombardment system. 
But the Chinese, uh, you and I have talked about this a couple of times, right? 14,000 ton Coast Guard cutters to intimidate and shoulder people out of the way. You know, Chinese Coast Guard cutters, they're that massive. Uh, but there is also the fishing fleet, fishing militias. I mean, all of this capability. Yeah. As you look across the theater, f uh, from the standpoint of a, a Coast Guard professional, what do you see the threats? And what do you see as that long-range picture that then in turn is going to shape your investment, your doctrine, your strategy, and your thinking? Sure. Well, I think, you know, like the United States Navy, like the United States government, we're all about free and open, uh, free and open Indo-Pacific. You know, you think about the, the volume of the global commerce that transits the waters of that part of the world. And I think what we want to do is support open commerce there and, you know, kind of default to the post-Second World War rules-based international order. And we're over there to, 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 to bolster that. And for us, you know, I look at, so through the lens of competition, I look at China and say, let's talk about China as a competitor in the region. And what is China, the PLA and Navy, Chinese PRC Navy, you know, they, they kind of keep them at a distance. I think they stay at a distance and they say, no, no, it's you, America, it's you, UK, that are our militarizing region. They're using their Coast Guard, though, very differently. The Coast Chinese Coast Guard's a bit of the actioning arm for some of their maritime activities. And they have the People's Armed Force Maritime Militia, which is, you know, quasi-fishermen, but it's on state-sponsored vessels, and they use them to, you know, shake down, run down, you know, different nationalities that are fishing in disputed regions. So, you know, what I I hear a audio version of what's going on, and then you know the visual corresponding piece that doesn't necessarily correlate. So I think we bring rules-based order, you know, modern maritime governance. The Coast Guard I think is recognized as sort of the global good guys, and I think that's what we bring to the region when we sail a national security cutter over there. Or we sail our um, fast response cutters in and around the Oceania region. I think we demonstrate the kind of behaviors the world should expect of its Coast Guards. Um, are there any particular actions you're seeing that are concerning uh, about what the Chinese are doing, right? I mean, there is this steady encroachment and, and virtual presence is actual absence in the area. Um, they will fish, they will transgress, um, but, you know, whether it's a 12-mile limit or any other limit. From your standpoint, what is the kind of behavior you're seeing that you think is yeah, particularly well, problematic. Well, I like to like I, I always default to what the, what the behaviors we want to see are free and open oceans, and we want to we have a role in supporting that across the globe. You know, you, if you talk through the lens of illegal fishing, illegal, unregulated, unreported fishing, IUF fishing, you know, I think it's it's kind of common knowledge that that China is the world's worst violator. They got a large distant water fleet. You can argue about what's the numbers in the distant water fleet. Some say it's 4,000 if you sort of, depends on where you draw the lines, if it's outside the second chain. But there's thousands of vessels plying the nation's, the world's waters here. And you know, here in the Western hemisphere, you know, we've seen 350 Chinese or Chinese characteristic vessels maybe under, uh, you know, a, a coastal nation's flag, but that's probably not with very much transparency with that. And those fish are caught, they're processed on large ships and sent back to mainland China. So, you know, they're violating, they're, you know, they're encroaching in other nations' waters. There's not a lot of regard. We saw the Ecuadorian uh, situation in the Galapagos Marine Reserve a couple of years ago, I think, or a year ago. You know, we saw the, the ambassador, the president um, down walking the beach. There's trash everywhere, you know. Uh, we think they're, they think they're fishing inside uh, Galapagos EEZ. Wow. We sent a national security cutter down there for about three, four days, and in that short period of time, at the behest of the Ecuadorian government, and we helped the Ecuadorian Navy find the fleet, and then we identified a couple, you know, dozen, dozen plus vessels that their advertised behavior on their AIS automatic identification system didn't quite correlate with the visual cues and other things that we detected there. So we passed some of that information along. So I think for us it's, you know, we're a responsible flag state. We hold our U.S. fishing fleet 
to our to our standards, the national standards. I think we see the Chinese distant water fleet behaving differently, and I think the global society needs to be aware of that. They sort of take advantage of coastal nations with weak maritime forces, and they exploit their natural resources. So I think that's a global concern. It's a food sustainment concern. Um, the the uh, challenge also is that the Chinese have said, hey, you're bringing these ships close to our coast. We can play that game also. We're going to go off the U.S. coast. What's the kind of activity that you're seeing closer to the United States now that the Chinese are saying, hey, we're going to yeah. do all of the stuff that you're doing? So we actually saw a, uh, a multi-ship, I think it was a four-ship uh, surface action group up uh, up off of Alaska, up in the northern Pacific here recently. We had a national security cutter up there on patrol. A couple of national security cutters working in the region. One was doing what we call North Pacific Guard, which is a collaborative effort with Japan, with South Korea, with the Canadians, with China historically, um, with Russia. And we go out there and, you know, years back, we used to have this high seas drift net fishing. And over the course of the last 25 years, un under UN sanction, we essentially eradicated that illegal fishing behavior. So you can change behaviors. but. In our normal operations up there, you know, we did come across this Chinese surface action group. So you, you scratch your head and, and obviously any nation can apply the international waters of the world, but that's different behavior. You know, we do not see China as a responsible flag state with any Chinese vessels off uh, South America where there's illegal fishing and things going on. So I think it's, it's cause for concern. We need to pay attention. It's about domain awareness. There fleets are vast. Their Navy now is bigger than the United States Navy. Their Coast Guard is larger than the right. United States Coast Guard. Uh, you know, even though I think you, you're doing well in terms of the high-end cutters, the national security cutters, which are extraordinary, you've gotten enough of them to replace the old Hamilton class. And i uh, going to ask you a little bit about modernization in a minute. Um, do you have the resources you need? What is the right way for the United States and the international community to counter this sort of illegal behavior when it's happening on a, on just a vast scale over vast distances, and ultimately the Chinese attitude is, right, there can't be enough light everywhere, we're gonna still get away with this. Yeah, I think there's a couple parts of it. I think allies and partners are absolutely key. I think if you look into you know, the, the existing national defense strategy, I suspect in the new national defense strategy, you know, our ability to collaborate and partner with allies and partners is absolutely essential. No one has sufficient capacity to take this on alone. Um, for us, you know, we're, we're building out modern ships with more enhanced capabilities. You know, um, it's, it's where you operate them. You know, for us, we have a home game, the, the Homeland Security Mission, which is, is a full-time demand, and it enables the mar Marine Transportation ship. And then there's the away game supporting the combatant commanders. I think we have the, the wherewithal to do both, but, um, you know, we need to continue to, to have a compelling narrative that we take to the administration each year as the president sends a budget to the Congress, and we need to be telling our story on the Hill. I think we've had a couple of successful years here back to back, and uh, the 22 budget, I'm eagerly awaiting congressional enactment of the budget because it's a, a solid budget for us, at least a, about a six and a half, almost seven percent a positive trajectory and operations support funding, which that's where we've been struggling in the past good part of the last decade. So I am encouraged that the administration, the Congress recognizes the Coast Guard's sort of a unique instrument in national security and some of the global threats we face right now. So we're going to keep our, our pedal on the gas and continue to put cutters in the fight in, tell the nation, you know, what's the, the resources needed for the Coast Guard the nation deserves here. And a word from our sponsors. GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all-domain command and control. 
From a resourcing uh, perspective and a capabilities perspective, walk us through what your modernization priorities are. It's been a little while since yeah, you've no. joined us, uh, right? I mean, the high-end cutters, uh, you're looking at yeah. offshore patrol. Walk us through the end, yeah, and of course, the Arctic this. cutters. We are, we are at the largest shipbuilding recapitalization effort since the Second World War. So I'll talk, we talked a little bit about national security cutters. You mentioned that a, a replacement. Actually, we had 12 high-endurance cutters yesteryear. We're going to build out a fleet of 11. Uh, nine are, are operating today, 10 and 11 are under construction, and that's exciting. They'll come in the next couple of years. Um, polar security cutters, which are the heavy icebreakers. So we awarded um, a contract back in the spring of 2019 to VT Halter. They should start cutting steel here in the next few months, early into the calendar year 22. And uh, the first and second are both fully funded for production. There's some you know, some lead monies for the third. So I think there's a clear signal that that program of record is on track. I've tried to elevate the discussion to a, to a conversation about, about six icebreakers as a minimum. Minimum of that six needs to be these heavy polar security cutters. And uh, we'll probably come out with a name of the first one sometime in the coming months here, just to keep that energy alive. We're building fast response cutters. And uh, we got two that'll be sailing here this week over to the Arabian Gulf, um, to the Bahrain. We sent the first two here this past spring and they're standing to watch two more here and then the next two next summer. So we'll have recapitalized our six island-class patrol boats that were in Bahrain with six new fast response cutters, 44 feet more linear length along the waterline, uh, additional crew, an EOIR, remote operated um, gun from inside the pilot house, very, very much enhanced C5ISR. And then we're uh, and they and they ride better, and they're more reliable. One hundred and fifty percent more tonnage. They're much more reliable. We're going to do a contract in the spring. We have this uh, fleet of inland river construction tenders, thirty-five vessels strong. The oldest is almost seventy-five years. The average age is fifty-five. We're going to award a contract this spring coming up twenty-two to replace that with a fleet of thirty vessels. That's what we call the waterways commerce cutters. You know, back to the FRCs. There's fifty-eight domestic hulls, six abroad. So it's a fleet of 64, they are all funded. That's a good news story there. We're gonna do commission uh, a couple coming up here in the next few months again. So we're on a really good trajectory there. So I hit polar security cutters, national security cutters. The, the really the main backbone skeleton piece here from this whole recapitalization is our offshore patrol cutter fleet. And uh, the Argus, the first um, in that class is probably between 50 and 60% complete. We will take acceptance on that ship in 23. And that's a 360-foot ship, you know, about the equivalent tonnage of what the 378 used to have. It's not um, as big as an NSC tonnage-wise, but that's going to be a 12,000-mile range ship. The ability to have uh, unmanned systems, a helicopter on board, or multiple helicopters, really capable. So we're excited, and that's a fleet of 25 offshore patrol cutters. The first three are under construction, the funding for, for a fourth and long lead for fifths in the 22 budget. So we are on a really constructive you know track line for the ships in aviation we're doing a lot in aviation we're uh we got funding for the 19 c-130j we're um we're bringing more jayhawk 60s on board and starting to draw down 98 dolphins that are getting a little bit harder to support because they're not made anymore drawing up our number of 46 47 jayhawks up to probably north of 100 so we got a lot of things going on in the recapitalization front modernization front Thinking back to the deep water program, right, the yeah. integrated nature of it and the command and control network was a very important piece of it. The Pentagon, uh, as you know, is moving ahead with the Joint All Domain Command and Control yeah. System. We're hitting a little bit of a pause button. Um, how does the Coast Guard factor into that? Because you are 
have always been an integral part of Navy battle groups wherever they've sailed. Uh, you, you've done entire deployments uh, with the Navy, but you have to also be able to operate independently, but you're also part of that sensor ISR grid. How does the Coast Guard need to get connected into this, and how do our allies and partners need to be connected into this, given that we're actually trying to create that thousand-ship fleet, even if it might not be all-American? Yeah, I, th I think, Vago, obviously we stay, you know, we have NTNO, uh, Navy-type, Navy-owned equipment, our weapons systems, um, some of the communications capabilities, you know, we're, we're trying to build skiff-enabled ships on our, on our large major cutters to enable to be end users, contributors to national intelligence. So we very much stay in sync, you know, the JADC2, the different efforts afoot. We're, we're teamed with that. I think for us it's a bit of how do we stay linked up, you know, what ships need to have Link, Link 16 capabilities and those type of things so we can sail with the fleet. As we send a national security cutter over to you in the Pacific, there's a workup though because that is not sort of steady state every day. So we got to get that ship ready. We got to be able to fight that ship in theater. So that's a place where, you know, it takes us a little extra lead time to make sure we send a crew in a ship that's uh, that's up for the task overseas. Um, as people think about great power, the Coast Guard in every war we fought has played a kinetic role in it. Um, even in Vietnam, Coast Guard cutters were right. playing a kinetic role. And once upon a time, there was anti-submarine equipment that was on the 378s, for example. Even the 270s had uh, some capability uh, for that. The Coast Guard moved away from that in the post-Cold War era. How do we need to think about what that kinetic end of the war fight looks like in the Coast Guard's involvement? Yeah, it's interesting, Vago. You know, I, I tend to look, and I think this is really a, a Jim Mattis sort of worldview, but, you know, you look across the continuum from cooperate, cooperate where you can, you know, compete where you must, and, and obviously the far extension of that is, you know, lethal engagement. I look at us as sort of a bridge between State Department diplomacy and Department of Defense lethality. We work, and to me, that's this flat tabletop here, 180-degree arc. I would say zero to 150, we can argue about where that, that needle falls. That's probably the, the cooperate competitive side of the 180 degree swing. And I think that's Coast Guard work. I think, you know, for us, it's, we have some, you know, armament and capabilities on our ship, but we're not necessarily there for the high end fight, but you know, we're sort of the street fighter in the littorals. I think we're, what we can do is build the capacity, bolster the partner nations that are in the fight. You know, we, uh, we bring some capability, we bring self-defensive capability. And I think we, you know, we're not, I don't see us being in the missile shooting business anytime soon, nor should we be there because of the, the breadth of our authorities and, and things like that. But, um, you know, what does future look like? I don't know. We're building the icebreakers. We're, that's a competitive environment with Russia. You know, Russia's got designs on the Northern Sea Rod and really using that as an economic engine for their, for their economy. And, um, you know, they, they got a lot of icebreakers. They're building a lot more icebreakers, you know, nuclear and, and LNG powered large. So, you know, we need to compete in that space. We sailed the Healy across the Northwest Pass here in, in recent months. And just to show we can project Coast Guard capability to the Atlantic here. We used to have more icebreaking capacity many years ago. So I see us returning to that. So I think there's a lot in that conversation, but we want to stay linked up with our Navy counterparts, know what systems we need to, to be interoperable, and I think we're on a, on a good glide slope there. Um, I'm going to get the hook in a second. So two uh, very quick questions. Okay. You talked about the Arctic. Harry yeah. DeWolf, uh, Canada's new Arctic uh, right. cutter. Uh, well, sort know, of an OPV, I think, with some ice capabilities is how the Canadians would describe it. That's right. It. Yeah. I, I, was, I, I misspoke. But yes, it's a, it's a cutter that has uh, yeah. ice capabilities, just did the Northwest Passage. Yeah. Uh, and talk to us about some of the exercises and how we're working with our Canadian allies. And yeah, so we, we are partnered up with our Canadian allies on many fronts. You know, right now, the, the, the Wolf, Harry the Wolf, is actually uh, off the uh, coast of um, Central America in the Eastern Pacific with the Coast Guard Law Enforcement Attachment on board, and they're actually doing some counter-narcotics work. We do a lot of that with the Canadian Navy. Um, when we took the um, Healy through the Northwest Pass, we, myself and uh, 
you know, my team and then Commissioner Mario Pelletier from the Canadian Coast Guard, we all flew in a Resolute and we went out and did a joint exercise with the Canadian Icebreaker in the Healy. So I think the Canadian-U.S. Coast Guard partnership, Canadian Navy, Canadian Coast Guard has never been stronger. Just, you know, Canadian Air, we had a terrific rescue of a Canadian fishing vessel, Atlantic Destiny, off of Nova Scotia, nighttime rescue, Canadian, you know, armed force aircraft, Coast Guard aircraft, we pulled 23 of 31, I may have the number off one or two there, but it was a dark stormy night, fire on board, dead ship floundering at sea, Canadian aircraft had a little bit of mechanical problems, hydraulically, we came in with 260 helicopters, pull them off, Canadian ship came in, pulled the last eight, ship sank, you know, by early morning ice. So we partnered with the Canadians, we trained the Canadians, Operation Green Flash on the East Coast, the U.S. Navy, the Coast Guard, the Canadian um, Navy exercise, we were just over in Greenland with the Canadians, and uh, the Danes and the French actually doing some joint operations here with the Coast Guard 270. You know, you're pretty familiar with the famous class, and we also had a fast response cutter there. So I would tell you, I don't think the lines of collaboration with our Canadian Naval and Coast Guard counterparts have ever been stronger. We'll be breaking ice, you know, in a, in a joint sort of pattern up in the uh, Great Lakes this winter. You know, we can have a U.S. Coast Guard cutter if it's the closest to a Canadian port break ice, and it could be a Canadian cutter breaking ice over on the on the uh, St. Clair River if that's where the assets are distributed. Uh, and uh, last question, climate change, obviously yep. large, we just came out of COP26. Yep. Uh, there probably isn't anybody in the uh, United States national security community that most intensely feels uh, climate change, whether it's the black holes in the uh, you know in internal waterways or on coasts. Do we have a good strategic site picture of what the budgetary impacts of this are going to be as you look out there five, 10, 20 years? Because if you look at it, sea levels are rising in places that are going to cause significant yeah. disruption even in the United States. I would tell you this, Not right. even infrastructure yeah. yet, right? I would tell you for, for, for climate and the Coast Guard, it, it really shapes everything. I mean, you think about it shapes the nature of our work. So, you know, you just look in the last five years, 20 hurricanes, 12 plus major storms. You know, there's something going on in terms of weather patterns, more Cat 4, Cat 5, what we, you know, 3, 4, 5 major hurricanes in recent years. So our activities it's sort of a demand signal there. Then we look at um, the resiliency of our facilities. We're a disaggregated Coast Guard, many small units spread across the country. I look up and down the Eastern Seaboard, you look at places like New York, Norfolk, Miami, South Florida, that you know when you're talking about sea level rise on the Eastern Seaboard, those places come up pretty quick. So we are, we are dialed in, you know, what we do have is about a two plus billion dollar backlog of infrastructure. More than half of our shore facilities are well beyond their you know, their lifespan here a little bit. So we're playing catch-up ball. Then you sort of layer in, you know, the realities of, uh, you know, the climate changes and things like that. Then you look at from a, from a Coast Guard mission perspective, you know, the administration's pushing hard for renewable energy. So there's permitting with the Bureau of Oceans Engin Energy Management, BOEM, for about 17, 1800 wind turbines, you know, along the eastern seaboard, some additional ones into the Gulf. They're building a, uh, a facility in New London, just you know, down the down the river, Thames River, from our Coast Guard Academy, where they're going to be servicing with offshore supply vessels, which generally don't OSV-type vessels that you don't see in the Eastern Seaboard much, typically in the Gulf. They're going to be running these large turbine operations out to the Atlantic here. So for us, it's uh, it really touches our missions. It touches our our own resilience and it, it, it touches uh, you know all aspects. So we are thinking into that. I think we always have thought into that. We're looking at you know our own energy use about 90 plus percent of, of excuse me about 
we're the biggest real property owner inside of DHS and about 90 plus percent of the energy initiatives in the department are, are fall on the Coast Guard. We've done some energy projects at the Academy, we had some energy savings and uh, I think we now save about 43 percent of the energy we used to use before, we save about 15 percent of the water. We had a big 48 million project that we just kicked off in September out in Petaluma that's going to give us some resilience with the wildfires out there. We're going to be able to land base, solar arrays, batteries. We're going to have 10 days of our own power on our own solar grid here to stay in the fight, continue to train, do those things the nation expects of us. Admiral, always an honor and pleasure talking Thanks, to you. Michael, Thanks, Michael. Always so good to see you. Thanks for uh, the chance to catch up a little bit and talk a little bit about what your Coast Guard's doing. Keep breaking the legs, sir. Thank you. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.